0: Must be the luckiest man in the whole world because
1: I have been married to you for fifty years. Mama, give you a butcher knife. Chew on that a while. You have never done anything for me except leave me a shadow to try and breathe in. We love stories. It's time for the apple
2: seed. Filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you and to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. Always thrilled every time you tune in. And tune in at the website, too, or Google the Appleseed podcast for something new every day, right on your mobile device. And uh, it's going to be a great hour today. We're going to bring you stories from Motoko and from Tim Lowry and from Sheila Arnold. A lot of these stories are about how families and friends can step up and help bear some of life's burdens. and The first story that we're going to hear is going to be introduced to you by someone I'm thrilled to have in the studio with me, one of our assistant producers, Kendra Hanna. Kendra, it's great to have you with me.
3: Great to be here.
2: I love... Uh, The storyteller that we're about to hear, uh, this is Motoko, who is a wonderful storyteller but also a wonderful mime. Now, a lot of that doesn't come across on the radio, of course, right? (laughs) But you get to hear her wonderful stories. She's filled with gentleness and filled with this wonderful sort of visual life to her stories, too. She was, in fact, a mime who guested many, many years ago on uh, the television program Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood.
3: I so, didn't know that. Yeah,
2: so let's hear about the story that we're going to hear from Motoko today.
3: Yeah. So this is a Japanese tale, um, and it just has such great messages in it about long-lasting love and, and the contrast between greed and sharing with those you love. So so this husband and this wife, uh, they grow old together. And then when they discover something that is able to make them young, uh, they're able to to share that with each other and... We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah,
2: it's all. You, you always think, "Oh, great! A way to stay young forever. What could go wrong? What, what could be the downside?" Right? Exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, you find out that's the beginning of the story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this is Multico with a story called "Water of Life," and we're happy to bring it to you here on the Apple Seed.
0: 命の水おじいさんが命の水見つけた命の水おばあさんに命の水あげよう This is a story called Water of Life, which in Japanese is 命の水。once upon a time, a long time ago, in Japan, there lived an old couple. An old man and an old woman who lived in this little village right at the foot of a mountain. The husband's name was Masa, and the wife's name was Yoshi. They were both very poor, so they lived a simple life. But their life was sweet because they loved each other very much. The old man Masa would often say, Oh, my dear wife Yoshi, I must be the luckiest man in the whole world because I have been married to you for 50 years. And at this point, I just hope that when we die, we will die exactly at the same time so that we can go to heaven together. Then his wife Yoshi will blush and say, Oh, my dear sweet husband, I feel exactly the same way, and I hope to be your wife in heaven too. And both of them would go, Now, I know you think it's way too mushy, but that was the way those old people were. Well, it just so happened that Masa and Yoshi had a very greedy and mean neighbor who was also their landlord. His name was Kichi. Kichi was the reason why Masai and Yoshi were so poor, because Kichi was always raising their rent, every year. And he would even spy on them, look through their windows, to see if Masai and Yoshi had anything he could take away from them. Kichi loved money more than anything else, so he had plenty of money. But he had no friends. In fact, Masa and Yoshi were the only people in the village who would bother to speak to Kichi. Well, one day, the old man Masa went up the mountain to get some firewood. But as he started to climb up the hill, he felt this pain in his neck and this ache in his back. He said, I am getting very old, but I must do this to take good care of my wife and he kept climbing up the rocky hill. Suddenly, he heard some squeaking noise and saw something brown and furry jumping around fiercely in the tall grass. He realized it was some animal caught in the hunter's trap. Massa walked over there and opened up the bushes and saw that it was a beautiful golden-colored fox. She was a mother fox he could see, because her kits, three of them, were running around her, frantically, not knowing what to do. But as Masa came closer, the three kits ran away and disappeared into the bushes. The mother fox stopped jumping around. She just looked up at Masa with her sad brown eyes. Masa felt so sorry for the fox. He said, I am going to set you free because you must live to take care of your young ones. And he stepped onto the metal hinge of the trap, and it opened up, and the mother fox was free. But she was badly hurt. One of her hind legs was all smashed up. She began to hobble away, leaving a thin trail of blood right behind her. Pretty soon, her little kids came out of the bushes and joined her. But Masa was worried that the mother fox may not make it, so he decided to follow them for a while at a distance. The mother fox was moving very, very slowly. She seemed to be getting weaker and weaker. They led Masa through trees and brambles, higher and higher up the mountain, and deeper and deeper into the forest. Until they came to this little spring of water, among some moss-covered rocks. Masa, hiding behind a tree, saw the mother fox take a drink from that spring. Then something strange happened. You see, when she finished drinking, the mother fox was no longer weak. She was strong and healthy. And she and her little kids quickly climbed up the hill and disappeared into the trees in a flash. Her hind legs seemed to have been completely healed. So Masa was relieved. He was glad. And he realized he was thirsty too after this long climb. So he walked over to the spring and took a sip. Ah. And he was amazed at how great this water tasted. I mean, it was cool and clear, as sweet as pear juice he went ahead and took another sip. (sighs) Ah. And he felt so much better, more refreshed than he had felt in years. And when he stood up, he realized that this pain in his neck was gone. He no longer felt this pain in his back. He felt so strong and healthy, he started to collect some kindling right there. And he made himself a big bundle of wood in no time. And when he lifted the whole thing up onto his shoulder, he was surprised how light it felt. And he ran down the mountain to go home. Yoshi, look how much wood I got for you! Masa shouted as he ran into the house, and he almost bumped right into Yoshi. Yoshi went, (gasps) And she looked really frightened. In a trembling voice, she said, Who who, who are you and what, what do you want? What are you saying, Yoshi? It's me. Stay back. I don't know who you are, but my husband will be home any minute. What are you saying, Yoshi? I am your husband. Don't you recognize me? But just then, Masa took a glimpse of himself in a basin of water nearby, and it was his turn to go, (gasps) Because what he saw was not his old wrinkled face, but a handsome-looking young man about 20 years old, with smooth skin, strong muscles, and shining eyes. (gasps) This is me? What, what, What happened to me? It must have been the water. It was a magic spring. Wife, you must believe me. The water up on the mountain made me young. His wife looked at him and said, Well, you are wearing my husband's clothes. And you sort of look like him when we first got married um 50 years ago. Masa, is that really you? Yes, it's me. And now you must come with me and drink the water too. Ah, you don't run fast enough. Here, I'll carry you. And he picked her right up and started to run back up the mountain. Well, it did take them a while to find the magic spring again, but they did find it. And when Yoshi took a few sips of that magic water, (sighs) the water turned her into a beautiful and sexy maiden of 18. And now Masa and Yoshi were happy young couple. But it did not take long for their greedy neighbor Kichi to find out what happened. He came right over one day and made Masa and Yoshi tell him exactly where the spring was, saying, Ah, if what you say is true, I can put all the water in bottles and sell them and make lots more money. Kichi went up the mountain right next day to look for the spring. And it took him all day long to find it. But when he finally came to it, you see, the water looked so cool and delicious. He said, hmm, maybe I should just take one sip to make sure if it works. And he took a sip. Ah. And you see, the water tasted so great, he said, hmm. Maybe I should take just one more sip. Uh, Definitely just one more sip. Uh, Just one more, just one more. Uh, And because he was greedy, he did not know when to stop. Well, old man Kichi did not make it home that night. So by next morning, Masa and Yoshi were worried, and they went up the mountain to look for him. But when they came to the magic spring, they did not see old man Kichi. What they saw instead was a cute little baby boy wrapped in Kichi's clothes. Well, Masa and Yoshi took baby Kichi home to take care of him and raised him as if he was their own. And guess what? This time, Kichi did not grow up to be greedy and mean. He turned out to be gentle and kind, just the way his parents were to him. And that's the end of the story. Inochi no mizu, the old man found a spring. Inochi no mizu, what a delightful thing. Inochi no mizu, he gave his wife some too. (laughs) A dream come true.
2: The story, "Water of Life," told for you by Motoko. I've been listening to it not only with you but also with one of our assistant producers, Kendra Hanna. Kendra, uh, there's so much to love about that story.
3: There really is, and I think one of my favorite things is how this couple is just so loving that even when they find their horrible um, landlord as a baby. They just raise him with love at the end and <laughs> and he gets to have another shot to be nice.
2: <laughs> I love that about this story too. You know, you can almost, in another story, you could almost predict what's going to happen. In another story, it's like, The old man and the old woman would find the spring, and they would become young again, and that would be sort of a real two-edged sword, right? And they'd discover at the end that becoming young wasn't really what they wanted, and, you know, that that, that kind of tends to be the way of these stories, Mm. you know? But in this story, it winds up being just a great gift to a deserving couple— and the bad guy in the story is even redeemed, as you say, right? Mm-hmm. He, he he doesn't get punished except in the <laughs> funny way, right? That his greed turns him into a baby, and then they. But then, of course, he gets this this second life as a kind person because of the kindness of the of the old now young couple. You
3: know? And I just think that's so fun. And when I heard this story, I was reminded of the first time I ever listened to the Appleseed, actually, because <laughs> the first story I ever heard was also um, a Motoko story. Uh, called "What Buddha Sees," mm. and uh, just thinking back on that and all of the great memories I've been able to have since that first exposure to the apple seed um, has been really fun. I, th-
2: I think about your, uh, I think about you sh- sharing that, and I think about how uh, my my wife talks about, uh, like if we see a great movie that we love, you know, so, uh, some months later she'll say, you know, what I want is to go see that movie again for the first time. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we we do kind of long for the great experience we had when we had the experience for the first time. Exactly.
3: Yeah. You can unwatch it, unhear it, unread That's it. That's right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, what a pleasure to hear that story. The story, of course, was Water of Life, told for you by the wonderful storyteller Motoko. Kendra, thanks for joining me.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Lots more coming up on this hour of the Apple Seed. I'm Sam Payne.
3: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
2: It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed, There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Tim Lowry and one from Sheila Arnold. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love. Here's a memory of mine about my dad and his running habit. It's uh, today's entry in the Radio Family Journal.
3: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family right when you need it. On the Appleseed.
2: I remember when my dad decided to start running a mile a day. He was in his early 30s, and I was in elementary school. He got pretty deep into it pretty fast, and what I mean by that is that on days when my mom walked me to school, we'd walk to school. But on the days when my dad walked me to school, he'd wheedle until I agreed to run at least part of the way. Pretty soon he was running everywhere, and not just a mile a day, two miles, and then five miles, and I just couldn't see what was so great about it. We lived in a little town against the Wasatch Mountains in Utah, and he'd come home with stories of running among deer, sometimes stories of deer jumping right over his head. He had stories of finding snakes on his morning run, and of standing at a safe distance while they slithered on by. These were some of the adventure stories of my childhood. And while I loved to hear them, none of them made me want to put on a pair of running shoes and join him. It just looked like a good way to get tired and sweaty and sore. It looked hard. I remember driving in the car with my dad, though, along his running routes. We'd be keeping an eye on the odometer, measuring out the lengths of each route so that he knew which route was a five-mile route and which was a three-mile route and so forth. He even measured out distances within the routes. He knew that the distance between such-and-such a stop sign and and such-and-such an old tree was a half-mile or whatever. I liked being in the car with my dad, but the running seemed like a heck of a lot of trouble. I was not interested. And then one day, I felt blue. I can't even remember why. An argument with my mom? a failed test at school, a flat bike tire, trouble with a neighbor, kid, I don't know. I don't remember what the trouble was. I only remember what it made me do. I decided to take a long walk, and I struck out along what I knew to be one of my dad's running routes— I knew it was exactly a mile between our house and the tree at the edge of town, the tree that marked the end of the houses and the beginning of the dirt road that wound around the big, flat, empty bench at the foot of the mountains to the east of us, the mountains that marked the mouth of American Fork Canyon. I'd walk to that tree. Halfway there, I was breathing hard. Three-fourths of the way there, and sweat stood on my forehead, and I could feel the burn in my legs. These were the very things, I thought, that kept me from running. But when I got to the tree, I didn't want to stop. I felt better than I did before my walk. I kept going. Down the dirt road, out across the bench. From the south, a storm was rolling in, and I watched the enormous gray clouds tumbling across the sky toward me. The wind whipped up tossing the grass on the bench and the heads of the trees on the mountain slope that rose from it. A summer storm, not cold, not even as yet wet, just wild, huge and wild. I leaned into the wind, pumped my legs harder beneath those enormous clouds on that wind-swept bench. I felt impossibly small, like a single blade of grass in a windstorm. But I felt something else, too, like a single blade of grass in a windstorm. I felt like i was part of what was going on out there as much a part of what was going on out there as the grass or the wind and it did something to me i got it i got why my dad went out there every day to run i could see it i could feel it i was vulnerable and small and also part of the world watching nature move around me i felt well i felt great I never did become the runner that my dad was. I ran on and off through college, and I used to push my son around in a stroller as I ran trails in the early days of being a dad. And now I walk a lot. I like how it feels out there, out of the house, under the sky, nature free to move around with me somewhere in the mix. Experts would say it's important to get out like that, not just for your muscles and your bones, but for your brain, for your sense of well-being, for all of that. I believe the experts, of course, but it doesn't take experts to confirm what I feel when I get out there. It's undeniable. And for me, it's something of a gift. A gift that came to me, or began to, when I was in elementary school, when my dad decided to start running a mile a day.
1: Radio Family Journal with Sam
3: Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
2: Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Coming up in just a little bit, you're going to hear a story from the South Carolina storyteller Tim Lowry, a story called Mutsmeg, and you won't want to miss that tale. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Through the songs that we remember, the meals that we share, the films that we love, the books that we treasure, and of course through the telling of stories, from teller to listener, sometimes through generations and generations. And talking about some of the ways in which great stories get down into our hearts and into our lives is something that we love to do here on the Appleseed with friends. And I'm delighted to be joined by Noah Baum, an old friend of the show. Uh, You can find her great work as a storyteller and author at NoahBaum.com. Noah, it's such a great pleasure to have you with me.
4: Hey, Sam, how good to be here again.
2: (laughs) You know, uh, let's talk a little bit about, I know this is something that's important to
4: you. Let's talk about prayer. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I just, you know, it's so interesting because I, my grandmother was religious, uh, you know, much more observant. Uh, I I did not grow up observing uh, that much, but when I had kids, I started lighting the candles for the Sabbath and it's because of this strong, strong memory of my grandmother lighting the Sabbath candles. And it was such um, a grandmother was a huge part of my life. And that moment was always, um, it was so powerful. I actually wrote about it in my book. I can, um, you know, tell you a little bit about it and read yeah please
2: do this of course is the book a land twice promised a wonderful book uh that has allowed noah to talk to audiences really of all kinds even audiences on different ends of a political spectrum right and uh yes Noah, read to us a little bit
4: so uh, this is it was just such a a strong memory when I was a little girl watching my safta which is the Hebrew for grandmother light the sabbath candles was a special magical time I spent most of my childhood every holiday and summer vacations in her little one room bedroom flat in Tel Aviv where the picture of Yaakov that's her son who was killed in the 1948 war hmm. um, it, the picture of his smooth serious face hung above the piano and I especially loved the time right before the sun began to set, when the Sabbath entered, everything came to a halt. In my mind, this is the hour of the doves. It is the moment every Friday afternoon when all the buses stop running and instantly a quiet descends on the city. The screeching brakes, the engine rumblings, the hustle, the bustle of life, everything disappears. And it seems that everything stops at once. Even conversations become quieter No one yells. A stillness like no other settles over the earth. It's so quiet that suddenly you can hear the doves. They're always invisible in the eaves. Hmm. Sitting in the enclosed balcony on the aluminum folding lounge chair, I listen. Embraced by their gentle cooing and soft gurgles, the mysterious wonder of their conversations, I'm cradled in peace. This is the hour of the doves. And on the kitchen table, my grandmother sets the candles in the three-branched silver candelabra. Safta, why are there three candles? She shrugs. Sugedenken, to remember. And this is how I remember it. She covers her head with a sheer white scarf, slightly bigger than a handkerchief. She circles her hands three times in front of the candles, like an ancient sorceress invoking the light to dispel the darkness. She covers her eyes and prays. She mutters the prayer in the Ashkenazi pronunciation, S instead of T, which I think is kind of strange and funny because we don't talk like that at all. Then her lips continue to move, but I can hardly make out what she's saying. Suddenly, it is not my Safta anymore, and it's a little scary. She's somewhere else. Whispering on and on a long list of names, strange names, Hashik, Usha, Ida. Fragments of names floating by carried on the size of her voice. Hypnotized, I watch a trickle of tears inch down along the knuckles of her hands, along the grooves of wrinkles. My throat tightens. I want to reach out and pull those hands from her face, make that trickle stop, get my smiling, loving Safda back. But she's so far away, out of my reach. I dare not get close. Like something holy that I know I'm not allowed to touch. I just stand there holding my breath. Finally, the list ends, always with, yudital, yudit. and then a very big sigh. And she sighs again. The hands come off the face and she wipes the tears. Her big smile is back. A guten Shabbos. A good Sabbath. Zol Zain sholim. Let there be peace. She pulls me close into her smothering embrace. The smells of 4 seven, eleven cologne and fried onions and cheap lipstick. And she covers my head and face with kisses. Her arms are the comfort and safety of the world. And it was only when I was much, much older then I realized that she's muttering the names of everyone that she had lost. Oh, huh. It was always like this because She didn't talk about it. Yeah. But when I grew up, I started understanding that, so it was all her brothers and her sisters and their husbands and wives and the children oh. and her grandparents and her aunts and uncles and cousins. And it was just this endless list of all her family. She lost everyone. Yeah, wow. Wow. And then, um, yeah, and it's just such a, powerful memory for me. And then at the end of the Sabbath, she would, you know, bring out the the sweet smells uh to mark, you know, you mark the end of the holy day and the beginning of the week by looking at the stars. There should be three yeah. stars. And then uh, there's this prayer that you do, and then you smell these sweet smells. So you invoke all the senses, huh. you drink a little bit of the wine, and, and then you you sing. And she, and, <laughs> and she was always, it was just this burst of joy. So was, as much as the beginning of the Sabbath was always the subdued holy thing, then when the Sabbath left, it was only, it was always... You know Elijah the prophet will come right so yeah was always clapping it's just this big joy, and it's so interesting the, don't you think like these personal prayers, these intimate yeah. moments um they are they're part of joy and they're also part of sadness and yeah it's, uh, it's very special
2: yeah, and, and I'll tell you as you were reading, I thought you know a lot of people a lot of people work to keep a diary or a journal to to record the daily moments of their lives you know but i think it's just as valuable to uh, step outside of the day to day and record in writing some of those kind of foundational memories that you have uh, that 's a kind of that 's a kind of personal writing that doesn 't sometimes that doesn 't always fit into uh, uh, the, the kind of discipline it is to keep a diary or a journal right mm-hmm. and I think about what a gift to not only to the people who read your book but a gift to your family and to yourself to have taken the time to record that important memory you know that's a that's a very important exercise it's been such a pleasure to chat with noah baum you can find her online at noahbaum.com and of course you can hear noah baum's stories here on the apple seed and on stages all over the country all over the world in some cases and uh, <laughs> no it's such a pleasure to have you with me
4: thank you so much sam
2: Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. And such a pleasure to chat with Noah Baum. We'll be sure to have her back. There's a lot more coming up in just a moment. You're going to hear a story called Mutzmeg, an Appalachian folk tale told for you by the South Carolina storyteller Tim Lowry. Don't miss it. I'm Sam Payne.
5: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
2: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on The Appleseed today. Up next, a story from the great South Carolina storyteller, Tim Lowry. This is a story called Muttsmeg. It's an Appalachian folk tale uh, that's included in a collection of folk tales told by Tim Lowry called Getting the Creeps. But don't be too worried, we never get too scary here on the Appleseed. In this story, three sisters find themselves orphaned, and when they set out to seek their fortunes, they find themselves getting into all kinds of adventures and all kinds of danger. Will the youngest girl be able to use her wits? To save herself and her sisters from certain doom Well, that's the story Here's Tim Lowry on the Appleseed. Once they was these three girls Named
5: Paul and Betts and Mutsmeg. Now Paul and Betts They was real purty girls But they weren't too smart Then they was Mutsmeg. She was real smart But Lord bless her She weren't too purty and them three girls, Paul, Betts, and Mutzmeg, they loved their mamma. They loved their mamma to death. And when their mamma died, she give all her worldly goods to them youngins of hern. She give Paul and Betts a big old cabbage patch of their own. And she give Mutzmeg a butcher knife that she kept for slicing bacon and such. That was all the worldly goods she had. And she left them things to them three youngins. And when their mamma was dead and buried, Paul and Betts fell into that cabbage patch, and they was eating and a gomming and slurpin' and slopping and carrying on. Poor little old Mutz Meg, she is standing out there by the gate saying, Can't I leastways least waste half a bite? And they'd say, No, you crazy old thing. Mama give you a butcher knife. Chew on that a while. Well, you can't chew on a butcher knife. Mutz Meg was starting to get hungry and didn't know what she was going to do to feed herself. And then when Paul and Betts eat up all that cabbage... They started off down the road to seek their fortune. And Mutzmeg, she is a begging to go with them. She said, can't I lease waste go with you? They said, no, you crazy old thing. Get away from here. Leave us alone. But she kept on a begging and a begging. And finally, they said that she could come with them. She begged to go because she didn't want to get left by her own self. They said, but you can't be our sister no more. You got to be our servant girl and do everything we say. Well, she went along with it. And so they started off down the road, the three of them, and they walked and they walked and they walked. They walked down the dirt road till they come up to the highway. They walked on the highway till they come up to the big state road. And they walked on the state road till this plumb out of the country. Finally, they needed them a place to spend the night. Well, they looked off to the side of the road and way off into some trees there. They seen a little house and there was a candle burning in the window. So and they made their way down the path through them trees and up to that house. And Paul and Betts, they shoved Mutz Meg behind them. And they said, now you just hush up. Let us do all the talking. And they pecked on the door. And this little old woman come to the door and she said, yes, what do you want? Paul and Betts, they said, uh, our names is Paul and Betts. And, and we're travelers looking for us a place to stay. And this your girl, this ain't our sister. This is Mutz Meg. And she's our servant girl. She has to do everything we say. And uh, we need us a place to spend the night. And we seen you light in the winder. Do you take in travelers? Oh, yes, yes, I take in travelers. We ain't got money to pay. Uh, so uh, if Mutz Meg can do some work for you to pay for our keep, she could sweep your floor, or take care of things in the kitchen for you. Oh, yes, I need somebody that could sweep up. That'll be fine. Come on in. And we won't eat no food. Because we ain't got money to pay for food, so we don't want to trouble you none. Oh, no, no. I like young'uns that eats good. I like good eatin' young'uns. Come on in. Come right on in. Well, that old woman was real good to Paul, Betts, and Mutts make, and she'd give them all kind of good food, give them big old hunks of yeller cake and jars of buttermilk to slurp it down with, and then after they is fed up good, she'd give them white nightgowns to put on and told them there's a big old four-poster bed up in the sleeping loft where they could sleep. So them three girls, they climbed up the ladder into the sleeping loft, and there's two big beds up in there, in one bed. There's three girls already asleep. Them three girls was that old woman's youngins. And then there's another bed on the other side. So Paul, Betts, and Mutzmeg, they climbed up in that bed, and put the kivers right up to their chin. And Paul and Betts went right off to sleep. But Mutzmeg, she lay there awake. She was missin' the comforts of home and missin' her mamma, And she lay there listening to all the sounds she heard in that strange place. Down below, she could hear that old woman's rocking chair creaking back and forth as she rocked right there in her chair by the fire. She could hear her knitting needles a clicking together as she worked on her handwork. And then, after a while, she heard something outside of that house. She heard heavy bootsteps coming up the gravel path. She heard them heavy bootsteps come right up the front porch steps. She heard the door latch lift up and the door creak open. She heard a voice say, Where's my supper? Mutzmeg jumped out of bed, run to the edge of the sleeping loft and peeped over and she seen a big old booger man a standing there. He had long black greasy hair hanging down past his shoulders, big old ugly warty face and he was a hollerin' at that old woman because she ain't got him up nothin' to eat. Now the woman said, Oh now I got you something to eat. I got three fine pullets right up there in the sleeping loft. If you grab them three girls by the hair of the head and wring their necks for me, <laughs> I'll fry them up for you supper. How am I going tell them from your three girls,' said that big old booger man. "'Oh, that's easy. "'My three girls got nightcaps on their head.' "'Well, when Mutzmeg heard that, "'she run over to that other four-poster bed "'and snatched them nightcaps off them three young'uns, "'put one on her own head, "'one on them two sisters of hern, "'and she jumped back into bed and pretended to be asleep. "'Well, that booger man, "'he socked his hand up in that sleeping loft, "'and he come down on them nightcaps, "'so he left them girls alone.' He retched over on the other side and he felt of 3 bareheaded bare-headed youngins. He snatched them up by the hair of the head and oh then the screaming and the hollering and the kicking and the crying and carrying on. When that old woman seen he'd snatched up the wrong girls, she grabbed up the soup ladle and she was a pounding that old feller in the head and he was a hollering and a cussing and while they were a fitting and a fussin' and a fightin', Mutzmeg jumped out of bed. She took that knife her mama had give her and she cut up all of them bed sheets and tied them together with knots and made herself a big long rope and she let herself down out the window from the sleeping loft and paw and bets come down behind her, and they took off a running, 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 until by morning they is far away from that place. They run up to a big old castle where a king lived, and that king took them in, and he told them all about that old booger man and that old witch woman that he is married to. He said that witch woman had stole a big white horse of his'n, and he would tried every way in the world to get that horse back, but she wouldn't let it loose. He said that booger man the witch woman was married to "'was worser than she was, "'cause if he caught you, "'he'd cook you and eat you for his supper. "'Well, Mutsmeg asked at king "'what he'd give to get that white horse back. "'King said he'd give a big sack of gold. <laughs> "'Paul and Bet said, "'they's too pretty to go on some crazy witch hunt. "'They wasn't going to do it, "'but Mutsmeg said she would do it. "'So she went right back down the road "'to that old witch's house,' When she seen that old witch out in the garden a-workin', she slipped in the house and hid herself right in a chimney corner amongst the shatters where nobody could see her good. That night when the witch woman was a-cookin' a big pot of soup, every time she'd turn to get something to put in that soup, Mutt's Meg would hop out from her hiding place, grab up the salt shaker, and pour some salt in that soup. Then she'd pop back into the shatters, that old witch woman would stir that soup around, and then when she turned around to get something else, Mutt's Meg would hop out, and she'd pour more salt in that soup, hop back in the shatters, and that old witch woman would stir that soup around. Pretty soon, Mutt's Meg had turned that soup into a big old salty brine. When the booger man come home for his supper, he had a spoon the size of a coal shovel. He poked it down in the soup pot and slurped up some of that soup, and then he said... Pfft. Ah, oh, you done ruined this soup, old woman. You put too much salt in it. No, no, I just put a pinch of salt in that. No, nah, you done ruined it. Tastes awful, like a mouthful of pickle juice. Go down the river and get me a bucket of water to slurp down. I gotta wash this taste out of my mouth. Oh, I can't go down to the river now on account it's dark, and I'm scared of the dark. Ah, uh, throw out your light ball. That old witch woman had her a magic light ball, and she flung that light ball down to the river bank, but Mutzmeg was there a waiting for it, and she caught it on the end of her knife and squinched it out in the water. When that old witch come down there with a bucket she couldn't see where she is going, she tripped over a root, poop, fell in the river, and drowned herself. Mutsmeg run to the barn. When she opened up the barn door there was that big old white horse that that witch had stolen from the king. It was tied with a rope, had 13 knots on it. Well, Muttsmeg, she didn't have time to untie all them knots, so she got out her butcher knife, and she started a-cutting through that rope. And while she was a-cutting through that rope, that a horse was a-standin' there, but he got a little spooked. He was wearing a silver bridle, had all kind of little bells all over it, and that horse jerked his head up, and all them little bells went, and that big booger man up at the house, he heard them bells, and he come a-running down to the barn. He flung the barn door open, he said, mm Somebody in here a messin' with my horse. But Mutsmeg was hid behind the barn door. So the Boogerman went back up to the house, and Mutsmeg went back to a sawin' them knots with that knife. She is almost ready to cut through that rope when that horse jerked up his head again. And all them little bells went. Big Boogerman come back down to the barn. He flung the barn door open. He said, mm mm-hmm. they somebody in here a messin' with my horse." And he looked right behind the barn door. But Mutzmeg was hid up in the hayloft. So he went back up to the house. She climbed down from the loft. She went back to sawing on them knots on that rope. And that old horse jerked up his head again. Them bells went. Boogerman come back down there. He said, mm-hmm. I'm going to find you. Somebody in here are messing with my horse. He looked behind the barn door. He looked up in the hayloft. But Mutzmeg was hid right up and under the horse's tail. That booger man got ready to go, and fore he left the barn, he started to pet that horse. He petted it on the top of the head, and he run a big warty hand down its neck. He run a hand across its withers, long its back. He got ready to slap that horse on the rump, and he said, "'Look-a-there!' My horse got too many legs in the hind end. he jerked up the horse's tail, and there stood mutsmeg. He grabbed the whole of her he said, mm-hmm, I got you now I'm going to cook you and eat you." He stuffed her down in a sack, carried her up to the house, and hung that sack up on a hook in the kitchen. Then he had to figure on how he's going to cook mutsmeg. His old woman always did all the cooking, and now that she would drowned herself, he had to figure it out for his own self. Oh, mutsmeg, she's up there swinging back and forth in that sack, she said. Mr. Boogerman, maybe you could boil me in a pot. How come you want to get boiled in a pot? Oh, says Mutsmeg, I ain't had a bath today and I'm kind of dirty. If you used to boil me in a pot, it'd clean me up good. If that's what you want, that ain't what you're going to get. Well, how about you fry me in a pan? How come you want to get fried in a pan? "'Well, it's kind of cold and drafty in this kitchen. "'If used to fry me in a panty, it'd warm me up good "'and help me be more comfortable. "'If that's what you want, that ain't what you're going to get.' "'I don't care what you do,' said Mutsmeg, swinging up in that sack. "'You can do whatever you want, old booger man. <sighs> "'As long as you don't beat me with a club.' "'How come you don't want to get beat with a club?' "'Oh,' says Mutsmeg, "'if you used to beat me with a club, "'my bones would pop and crack like dishes a breakin'. I'd howl like dogs and cats a-fightin', and my blood would drip like honey. <laughs> that sounds good, that's what you gonna get. And old booger man. he lit out the house to go get him a club. When he went to get a club, Mutzmeg took her knife and sliced that sack open and climbed out. She run around in the kitchen, and in the cupboard she found some white shiny plates. She stuffed them up in that sack. And out on the porch as a blue tick hound dog and a yaller cat, she snatched up them varmints and stuck em up in that sack behind them plates, and then she found a big old honey pot a settin there next to the kitchen sink. She picked up that honey pot stuffed it up in the sack, and then she took needle and thread and stitched that sack up right quick, run down to the barn, cut that horse loose got up on that horse, and took off down the road. That booger man come back from the woods. He jerked an oak tree up out of the side of the mountain to use for his club. Had the tree limbs a flinging off one end and the roots a-flopping off the other. And he's a-whirling that thing around. He said, now nah, I'm going to beat you with this your club. And he whopped in the side of that sack. And all them dishes started to pop and break. He said, oh, yeah, that's her bones a-breaking like shiny dishes a-popping and a-cracking. He whopped into it again. That old hound dog went, roar! And the cat said, Wee! mm mm-hmm. that's her howling like dogs and cats a-fightin'. He busted that honey pot open, and the honey was a-drippin' out the bottom of that sack, and he said, tch, tch, tch. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's her blood a-runnin' like honey. When that old booger man emptied that sack out, whoo, the hound dog bit him in the backside, and that cat was a-clawin' him in the face, he knowed he'd been tricked. He took off after mutts, Meg, but she'd gotten way ahead of him on that big white horse and had crossed the river and tied that horse off in the brush. When the Booger Man got down there to the river, he seen Mutz Meg sitting on the other side. She's sitting there on the opposite bank on a great big old flat rock. Big old boogerman, he said, how'd you get across this yer river? Mutz Meg said, well, you see this big old rock? I pecked a hole in the middle of it, tied a rope to the rock, and then tied it round my neck and skittered it across, and that's how I got over here. Don't you go nowhere, said that big Booger Man. He run and got himself a rock. He pecked a hole through the middle of it, tied a rope around it, tied the other end of the rope round his neck, flung it out there in the river, and that heavy rock drug him down, and he drowned himself. Then Mutsmeg climbed back on that big white horse and rode off to the king's castle. That king gave her a big sack of gold for getting his horse back. And Mutsmeg and Paul and Betts they lived good after that. Paul and Betts, they was purty. <laughs> But they still as dumb as ever. Mutz Meg, she was smart, and with her money, she bought some makeup. And that was the end of that. <laughs>
2: Tim Lowry with Muttsmeg here on the Appleseed. And we're going to wrap up today with a Sheila Arnold story. This is a story called We Hold the Rope. And in this story, an arrogant young man heads off into the world to seek his fortune to find that the world is not quite the place he had imagined it to be. What are his adventures? How will he get home if he does? Well, this is the story from Sheila Arnold on the Appleseed.
1: "'I am leaving, and I will be my own man,' the young man yelled at the elders in the hut. "'I will make my own way, and people will see me!' The young man's eyes seemed to have darts coming from them as he looked at his older brother, who stood with head bowed and arms to his side at the back of the hut. "'We do not want to stop you from leaving,' spoke the elders. "'We only ask for you to wait until the rains have gone no more than two months.' No, I will not wait. I want to be my own man now. I want people to know that I, too, am great, and I, too, am to be honored that I am not just the younger brother. Only wait so we can send you with the words of introduction to other villagers. I don't need your words, the young man's eyes flashed. I will make my own way. I can fight and hunt as well. I am gone. And with that, the young man walked out. The elders turned to the older brother, who shook his head in exasperation and sadness. And as the older brother followed, his younger one out of the hut, neither the elders nor he said anything. In their own hut, the younger brother collected the things he would need, rope, knife, herbs for injuries, dried fruit, a pack for his back with collected things to exchange. The older brother said nothing. When the younger brother was done, he looked at his brother, Anything to say? The older brother was quiet. I thought not. Now that I have determined my own steps, you have no words. All your words are about and for you. Brother, only wait until the rain is gone. The younger brother scoffed, and the older brother went on, Have I done something to you? Done something to me? No, brother. You have never done anything for me except leave me a shadow to try and breathe in. The older brother was quiet. See, even you know it is true. There was a silence that seemed to stretch over years. Then suddenly the younger brother said, There's nothing else. And he went out the door, walking at a fast clip. When the younger brother left, the older brother paced their hut back and forth slowly. He had been pacing for two hours, lost in thought, when he heard the heavens open up and the heavy rains fell. He could see this was a blinding rain, and he knew it was only the start of the rainy season. It would soon let up to breathe and then return harder. The older brother began to gather his own things. When the rain stopped an hour or so later, the older brother ran out the door. He looked behind only once and saw the elders in front of their communal hut standing, watching, and slowly nodding their heads. He quickly returned his focus to the ground in front of him. He was acknowledged as the best of trackers, but the rain had lost all prints of his brothers. He leaned over the side of cliffs and yelled down, Brother! Brother! There was no answer. He climbed some of the trees with denser foliage, but was not rewarded with his brother hiding in them. He peered into darkened caves and called, Brother! Brother! But again, no answer. What have I done, thought the brother. Am I the cause of this great anger? Does he not know how well he is regarded because he is my brother? This thought pierced his heart. That was the point exactly. He had been all about himself. The older brother came to the place where the great boars were captured. He carefully made his way to each of the large pit traps and called down, Brother! Brother! But no answer from any of them. Then he came to the biggest trap. His trap. He smiled, remembering the great boar he had pulled from this pit. It was larger than any had seen in many years. In piercing the boar in the pit, the boar had fought hard and had lost. He had brought the boar up from the deep hole after wrapping ropes around it and then carried it home on his broad shoulders. Oh, how the women danced around him that night, offering him whispers of what they would give. Many a home wanted him as their son-in-law at that moment, and he reveled in their admiration, leaving only a shadow behind for someone to follow in. His smile disappeared and his brow furrowed. This was who he had become, a man too big for anyone to be seen beside. He yelled down the pit, "'Brother! Brother!' Nothing. The older brother sat back on his haunches and yelled to the heavens, "'Brother! Brother!' And he heard it, faintly. "'I am here!' The older brother turned to his belly onto the ground and yelled, "'Brother! It is me! I will send down rope! No!' My leg will not move. Leave me here. Never. I will come get you. Although hearing the weak protest of the younger, the older brother began to work. He tied the rope around a nearby tree and made sure the knots were secure. He threw the rope down the pit and climbed down. I don't deserve to be rescued. Leave me here, the younger brother said, turning his face aside. The older brother turned the younger's face until they were eye to eye and said, I don't deserve to be your brother. Let us go home. The older brother lifted the younger and placed him upon his back. Hold on. Then slowly, the older brother climbed hand over hand. It was a slow climb with the extra weight. And they had not gone far before the heavens again opened and the rains poured down much worse than before. Their climb slowed again with mud rushing down into the pit, getting into the older brother's eyes. No matter how the younger brother wiped it away, the mud continued. A crack ripped through the sky and the lightning was almost blinding. Then the rope became slack and the brothers were going back down. Try as they might to grab the sides of the pit or stray roots, they were falling fast. Had the lightning hit the tree and the rope lifted off? Then suddenly... The rope tightened. The brothers did not move. What if the rope was caught on only a rock? If they were to move, they would certainly fall hard to the pit, and in this rain, they would not be found. Then they heard it. We hold the rope. It was an elder, and the rope began to slowly be brought up. The brothers could imagine the frail arms with the rope wrapped around them as they pulled, showing the veins and arteries under the strain. They could see those hands wrinkled with time, but with just enough strength to work in community and pull up a rope. When the brothers reached the top, two of the elders reached out and took the younger brother and pulled him over the top. Then, with a surge of near-impossible energy for their age, they pulled up the older brother. Many years later, the younger brother's nephew looked up to his uncle and said, Why do the elders have burns on their arms? Because the elders hold our rope, said the younger brother. And as he picked up his nephew and set him on his shoulder, as one day... I will hold the rope for you. When William Carey made the commitment to be a missionary in India, he said to his church brethren, I will venture to go down, but remember that you must hold the ropes.
2: Sheila Arnold with We Hold the Rope.
1: We want to remind
2: you that we're trying to complete 10,000 acts of service. And with your help, we're going to do it. We've got until October 15th to do it. And we encourage you to do anything, anything to make your community a better place. Tell us about it at byuradio.org slash service. That's where you can go to find out more about this month-long service campaign. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, and can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed.
3: Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The
5: Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.